welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and we've got an exciting show today. Patricia Schultz is on. She's been a Jeopardy clue. She's been a clue in the New York Times crossword puzzle because she was the author of the iconic book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Now she has another book, which I have no doubt will also be iconic. It's called Why We Travel, A Hundred Reasons to See the World. Hey, Patricia, welcome back to the Firmer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This will be fun. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's such a fun book. First of all, this may be one of the most beautiful books I've ever seen. Every photograph in it, and there are pages upon pages of gorgeous photos, is just spellbinding and wants you, makes you want to go on the road. Can you tell us a little bit about the photography and how that was incorporated into this project? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, actually, because even I, when I saw the final product, when you know it was out of the oven, I was so taken aback by... Um, you know, this product that we had spent years laboring over, because visually, I just think it's so stunning. But travel has always lent itself, you know, all of these exotic and not so exotic, but fascinating places around the world, um, really lend themselves to something visual. So 1000 Places was, you know, kind of basically all text. And that made it a challenge to me to capture the specialness of a place relying upon a postage stamp size photo if I was <laughs> right. lucky. Um, but this is really all visuals. And um, we, you know, labored over sometimes having honed it down to just a few dozen photos for that particular wow. destination. So to capture, I mean, you can imagine to capture the specialness or the essence of one isolated particular specific place and just one photo, you know, sounds like an easy enough thing until you sit down and try to do it. But, you know, I wanted the energy and I wanted, you know, the the irresistibility of, of experiencing these places to really, you know, experience them in the three dimensional and not just on the page. I really wanted that to speak to the to the reader. And, right. and hopefully we've we've accomplished that. Um, but I, I am very proud of it because, like you said, it's just so very beautiful. It is, and it it supports your thesis that there are a hundred reasons to see the world, and you give often very philosophical, very spiritual reasons uh, for why it's important to get out there and travel, and you reveal a lot about yourself and your your own uh, history as a traveler. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Patricia worked for us. She worked for Fromers <laughs> at the beginning of her career before she created her own iconic series. And I was so surprised to read in the book that you used to have a fear of flying. Can can you tell our listeners the story of how you got over that? Because I, I thought that was so apt and, and such a great shift in, in frame of mind. Well, you know, what I found um, when writing this book, well, I, I've, I, of course, I've always known, but what confirmed to me um, along every step of writing this book, Why We Travel, is that all of these um, insights and aphorisms and suggestions and, you know, pearls of wisdoms um, are nothing that we don't already know in some shape or form or have experienced hmm. in some way or another, and that don't apply just to life. 
And so much of what we learn when we travel, in fact, is a kind of life skill or a life memory that we bring back and then apply to, you know, the same old, same old with our day to day, ordinary, everyday life. And um, the idea of me getting over this fear of of uh, flying, I, I wouldn't necessarily talk about it entirely in the past sense because I'm still a nervous flyer. But I've understood that the more you do anything, once you face your fears, you know, be it um, you know eating broccoli or being in front of <laughs> you know um, you know going to a social environment with people you don't know or um, anything in life, the more you do it, the more you realize that, hey, you survived. It wasn't half as bad as you thought. And the more it becomes commonplace and the more you relax into it, the more you realize that I can do this and you feel empowered and you, you face the next time around with more confidence until ultimately it becomes not such a big deal. So do I love to travel? No, but do I, I'm sorry, do I love to fly? Yes, but I love to travel even more. And I think if you keep your eye on the carrot at the end of the experience, then everything is, you know, is put into perspective. And that fear is not so, you know, I decided along the way that when I was in a very small um, Cessna airplane, you know, the, the small ones that really scare the daylight out of me, Um <laughs> I, it just came to me. I mean, it was almost really as if an epiphany. And we were um, going to a bush camp in on safari. And I knew I was supposed to be in the moment. And I knew that if I could just relax into it, it would be the most magnificent experience flying over the savanna and seeing all of these you know, herds of zebra below us just scattering. Right. With, and I thought, this is such a magnificent experience thing and I'm about to lose it because I'm giving into my fear. And I kind mm. of just compartmentalized it and put it aside and gave myself into, you know, this immersion in the beauty and the the, you know, the privilege of it all. How lucky was I? And, right. and all of those, you know, that anxiousness and that nervousness and I in my stomach I said, well, those are just butterflies and this is just the thrill of it all. And I'm Meryl Streep. <laughs> I'm, I'm flying over the Maasai Mara and how lucky am I? And it, Right. It was, and you, you say in the book that you realized it was magic in a certain way. It is. And that you, you just have to believe that you're going to be, that, that the magic will hold. Magic only works if you believe in it. And isn't it true? And it truly is magical. So, you know, the bigger the airplane, the safer you are, they say. Um, actually, hmm. many believe it's quite the opposite, but it almost doesn't matter at the end of the day. I'm never going to understand aerodynamics. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm just going with the fact that how lucky are we to have a ticket in hand that gets us on one of those things yeah, to begin with. Absolutely. Well, you you also, I mean, sticking with the a theme of flying, you also talk a lot about kindness and and one of your reasons to see the world was that karma was true. And I thought I thought that story was going to be about somebody who was a really lousy person and got what was coming to them. But it was the opposite. Uh, talk about your karma is true story, if you would, um, with flying. And another thing is that, you know, leads me into this um, particular story is that I'm 
not all that social a person. When I'm at home, I'm usually, you know, with my nose to the screen and it's all about business and deadlines and writing and getting stuff done and, you know, getting it all done before I'm off someplace else. But when I'm on the road, I'm kind of like my best self. You know, I'm, hmm. I open up, I'm more of an extrovert, I'm, I'm friendly, I talk to pretty much anybody who will talk back to me. And I was at JFK here in New York and I was going to Vietnam. Um, this right. was a few years ago and I love Southeast Asia. That corner of the world to me is just, just yeah. unique. Mm-hmm. And I was very excited. And this fellow next to me, we were in the, at the gate waiting to board. Um, I, I was connecting in, in Los Angeles and then visiting friends and flying on a day or two later. And this fellow next to me, an older man looked um, older. He's probably a year or two older than me. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. And he um, looked rather, you know, quiet and the introvert that I usually am. And I thought, well, maybe he too is not, you know, elated about the thought of traveling or flying or who knew. So we came to, you know, chit chat, very lovely man. And um, he asked me where I was going and we were both going to LA and I was connecting, you know, to fly onward. And he pointed to his hat and he said, you know, I'm a Vietnam vet. And I said, well, actually, that's where I'll be connecting to. And he um, told me he was staying in in Los Angeles, but he hadn't flown in 30 or 40 years. And he was, wow. Yeah, it was quite nervous about it. And then there was an announcement. Um, I was to go to the gate uh, representative. um, And I thought, let this be good news. And um, (laughs) they told me that because of all of my frequent flying that I was um, updated, uh, updated, upgraded, upgraded, yeah, (laughs) upgraded to um, first class. Yeah, not business class, because it was a domestic flight, first class. So I asked if I could just transfer the um, kindness to this Vietnam vet and thanking him for his service and just generally to make the 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 trip a little bit more special. And right. So they brought him to um, the gate and they explained and he almost teared up really and he said he was going to to LAX because he had a new grandson and he was finally going to fly because it was the only way he was going to see this new child. So um, anyway, long story short, um, you know, we said goodbye when we saw each other again in LAX and I went off to visit friends for two days and I came back later, was boarding my flight, um, about to board my flight for that long haul from LAX to um, Ho Chi Minh City. Ho Chi Minh City. Yeah, that's a long flight. It is. It's quite a schlep, as we say in New York. And um, I again, I was called to the desk and there was a written note from the travel agent whose name was Patricia. We shared the same name. And she said, not the travel agent, the gate agent, right? The gate agent in JFK um, right. who had done me the favor. Her name was Patricia. And the note, the handwritten note that was waiting for me at the LAX airport was from Patricia in JFK saying, you've been upgraded again to business to Ho Chi Minh City. And she said, kindness begets kindness. And, yeah. and my heart just skipped a beat because I thought people remember and people, you know, uh, reciprocate and people do what they can when they sense that, you know, they've met a kindred spirit or a kind spirit. And I'm glad that somebody recognized that in me because um, that was not the objective I had in mind when I 
you know, pass the upgrade to this this veteran who was such a lovely individual. But yeah. things do come back. And I think what you put out, you know, comes back to you, hopefully, in worst case scenario, it doesn't in this life, but maybe down the road it will. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And there are t- tales of kindness uh, throughout the book, like when you're in Morocco, and Morocco is one of my favorite places. And I, I thought that your story there of you had to, your flight from Casablanca to Fez was canceled. You found a driver to take you to Fez, which is four hours away. So not an insignificant drive. And But you were starving. You said to him, where can I get really good couscous? And then he surprised you. <laughs> you, know, we had, you know how those cancellations go. You spend hours yeah. just trying to figure out what your plan B is. And we didn't have a plan B and the authorities there at the airport weren't making it very easy either. So ultimately we, we decided that just instead of writing off the day, if it was a one hour flight that probably translated to four or five hours on the road. So we fell into the um, good hands of this lovely, lovely gentleman called Mohammed. how unusual. And he <laughs> had one of those spotless white Jalabas, I think they call them the white robes. And he had those those um, leather slippers that turn up at the end. Mm. I'll always remember he had in yellow leather slippers. Wow. Um, but we had spent hours already and we were starving. I was with my good travel mate companion friend. Um, and we said, well, first, before, you know, hitting the road for this great road trip and his dilapidated 1962 Mercedes taxi. <laughs> I said, just bring us to the best couscous place, thinking he'd bring us to some kind of, you know, dive where all the taxi drivers go. And he right. took out his iPhone, very animated conversation, like forever. And I thought he was checking to see that this place was open because it was Friday. It's the Islamic day of rest and, and prayer. And um, he said, jump in the back seat. And off we went careening around, you know, into the back streets and 45 minutes later in this suburb um and hmm. my friend and I were exchanging glances thinking maybe this wasn't such a good suggestion <laughs> he pulled up to his home which was a very very modest home with no door and there in the doorway stood his mother his wife his two twin daughters and pretty much the entire neighborhood had wow. with you know smiles from ear to ear and they were just beside themselves. They were so honored to have us for the Friday dinner, which his mother had been preparing for hours. And it's the wow. day of couscous. I didn't know that. Um, you know, if this is Friday, it must be couscous. Hmm. So um, there was this big pyramid of couscous in the middle of the table. And we all sat around. And I remember the two spoons that very discreetly appeared on the table for their foreign guests. And it, because they eat couscous with their fingers? With their hands, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was um, the best couscous. And his mother, who spoke no French and just a smattering, uh, spoke no English and just a smattering of French, still, who's Muslim, still sends me a Christmas card oh. every year. Yeah, it usually arrives in February because of the post. Right. It was such a lovely, you know, and you can't plan those things. It's no. Serendipity is such a remarkable um, element 
And yes, you just yes. have to put yourself out there and, and hope that the universe kind of rewards you with these crazy things that often turn out to be the highlights um, that you had no idea we were going to. And you can't plan it and you can't book it and you can't um, hope for it to happen. Well, you can't right. hope for it to happen. Sure. We, you know, it's interesting. I often talk with male travel writers and they talk about these moments of serendipity and I've had them too, but also I sometimes get a little nervous as a female traveler who's often solo. And, and so that's why it was so uh, wonderful to hear about your serendipitous adventures, even though in that car, you were a little nervous going off into this strange suburb. We were doing, uh, you know, the elbow in each other's ribs thing. But I, that's, <laughs> it was um, important to me that I included in that anecdote in the book, or just to you now that I was traveling with a, a, a companion. Right. We we're both pretty um, seasoned in that we like to think our radar is kind of honed and that, you know, you're a good judgment judge of character because we had spent a good deal of time with Mohammed with the negotiating and getting sure and all that. And he just seemed, you know, from the gut, it felt like he was such a lovely individual, but you do need to have your guard up. And I entirely understand what you're saying because I do travel alone a lot. And I'm pretty sure that I would not get in the car with Mohammed and right. even just getting to Fez, let alone, you know, agreeing to go to his home. But I do feel more um, confident when I'm with somebody whose um, character I know well. And together we just automatically felt that um, we would not be in danger and that this might just be a, a remarkable thing. Right. So what is your advice for finding a good traveling companion? Well, you know, Mark Twain does say that you just, or it might be Ernest Hemingway. Either way, I appreciate their confirmation that you simply don't know anybody until you travel with them. But you mm. don't want to get that far to be in, you know, like two days into a two-week trip to, you know, understand that you made the wrong choice. So in making those plans, um, if you're not quite sure or if you're getting signs or, you know, if your friend your new friend or even a friend of a friend suddenly, you know, has an opening in their small group and why don't you join? And, you know, just be careful because it really makes or breaks the experience. The, yeah. the option is often to just travel on your own when you can't find anybody about whom you're confident or think is the perfect match. And I really, really encourage people to consider solo travel because it's so it's so prevalent now and it's so accepted now. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, there are destinations and countries where you might, you know, see a raised eyebrow or two, but not like even just a few years ago or certainly 10 years ago or a generation ago. And um, young Western, um, in our case, American girls traveling independently are seen everywhere. And, right. And, sure. And now even with digital nomads, they're living, you know, elsewhere and having these really million dollar experiences, because what you take away from solo travel is quite different from when you're traveling, even with a spouse or a significant other or a sibling or, you know, a small group, because you bring a little bit of home with you and it becomes quite comfortable. But uh -huh. You know, it's a little bit of compromise or a lot of compromise. And, yeah. you know, I like my alone time. I like to, um, 
you know, I like room service. I, I, I like to kind of, you know, percolate and and take in everything I've just experienced in the course of the right. day and plan my... And I think it's it's as simple as when you're traveling with a companion, you're looking at each other a lot of the time and talking. Whereas when you're on your own, you can just be in the destination, looking outwards, meeting new people. Yeah. And connect with people in a very different way. And my friend once rolled her eyes and said, yeah, 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 it's pity attention. And I said, call it what you will. <laughs> people reach out to you and they're, you know, they, they're, they're more helpful. You know, they're, they're, I I think more open to the conversation or to just chit chat and where are you from and all that kind of thing. And it's led to wonderful friendships and, um, you know, special events. And I've been invited to weddings and, um, wow. Or mitzvahs. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. And the funny thing is, Pauline is I'm not really like that at home, but, um, when you're out there and you're figuring this is my moment and I'm never coming back here again. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. And I want to experience it to the max. So will I, you know, sit next to somebody in a cafe and pick up a conversation in a way that I wouldn't back home in Manhattan? Probably I would. Yeah. Well, you're, I mean, you keep saying you're not like that back home, but my goodness, some of your tales, you're a true adventurer. I loved your story about how when you were in Bangkok and you couldn't get to the airport uh, in time for your flight, there was a big storm going on, which messed up your travel plans. You turned to, I guess it was a, a bellboy at the at the hotel and said, do you have a moped? And you jumped on the back. <laughs> And zoom to the airport. Uh, uh, desperation breeds unnatural um, endings. But it was a monsoon. And I mean, everything, you know, traffic, if you've been to any of the big Southeast Asian cities, you know, whether it's Saigon or um, Bentian or, or um, Bangkok, it's just standstill bumper. To, I mean, it takes you an hour yeah. and a half to go, you know, three blocks. And I just, you know, we had, I, it was... I was silly thinking that I could just kind of call a cab at the last minute and allow myself two hours to go six miles um, to get to the, you know, and it was a non-refundable ticket and there were all kinds of consequences. And suddenly my heart was in my mouth because as much as everybody behind the desk was trying to make calls and find some way I could, you know, everything was booked, everything was crazy. And I could see them rolling their eyes like this is just futile. So um, by then I knew this bellboy who was as sweet as anything and old enough to drive. <laughs> good, good, always good. Yeah. I had been in the hotel for um, a number of days, so we recognized each other. And the, the Thai people are just lovely, and he was always with a big smile. And um, I just said, help. <laughs> so we threw on a rain poncho. I was traveling lightly, always important to travel lightly. And, yes. you know, I put my over the shoulder bag um, on the motor ped motorbike with me. And we zipped in and out of that trap. I mean, we were like wet as if drowned rats, um, but <laughs> I made it in time. And, you know, he made a few Thai bot in his pocket and I made my flight and um, all was well with the world. Yeah. yeah. But you well, need to be resourceful. I mean, I probably in Manhattan, again, would not have done that. <laughs> no, <after laughs> right. Danger to get me to the airport on time. But, you know, a lot of these cultures and these other countries there, you know, you feel 
amazingly, or maybe not surprisingly at all, but amazingly more, um, or you you feel safer in a certain way than you do even in your, your hometown. Well, I mean, in Bangkok, you probably spent days looking at families of four perched on one motorcycle <laughs> going here and there. I mean, you know, what's odd and unusual here is is commonplace there, that the people just, you know, go on these small vehicles together and they get where they're going. I loved... Uh, you have a talk about how the commonplace can be really, really surprisingly different when you travel. You talk about one of your very first trips, which was to, I believe, the Dominican Republic with a a school friend when you were just a teenager. Is that correct? Am I getting the place right? Oh, very much so. And I was just 15 and it was my first passport and it was my first stamp. And I had befriended this. I mean, the Latino people for me have always been very special because growing up in a small town in upstate New York, you know, everything was pretty homogenous. And um, Hmm. it was a lovely town, but, um, you know, we all knew each other. We kept the doors open. We shoveled each other's snow. It was a lovely environment, but we didn't have that many non-third generation American Huh. people, residents. Right. And um, this girl to me um, s- uh, studied at my high school and she had family. Um, she was from and she had family, her parents. I mean, her, her immediate family were in Santo Domingo in, in the Dominican Republic. And I just thought she was the coolest thing that had ever crossed my path because hmm. her accent, hearing her speak Spanish, she helped me learn Spanish. Um, she helped me learn the guitar. She just opened up kind of a whole other dimension of life to me. And I don't think she really thought I'd take her up on an invitation to come and spend <laughs> a few weeks with her family in the Dominican Republic. And I didn't really think my parents would agree to it. But sure enough, um, my parents who never traveled, didn't have passports. You know, all we knew was the Jersey Shore, but saw how important it was to me and they made it happen. And, and that's um, to be immersed at 15 in another culture right. where everything, I mean, everything is different. A hundred and Well, she said, you're going to be bored. We're just going to be at my house. But just being at her house was eye-opening, right? Yeah. I mean, the smallest things. And I think she was bemused by it all because she saw, but she saw in me what I had seen in her being, you know, the outsider or the trespasser suddenly plopped into another um another culture and relying upon the kindness of those who surround you and, and um, finding everything exciting, you know, from breakfast to how, you know, to what they ate and, and, and this, you know, revolving door of family in and out and in and out. And she had all these cousins who I found out were not actually cousins, but everybody was an (laughs) uncle and an aunt and they weren't really, but in fact they were. And then we went to a baseball game because who knew this all American sport in fact, is 10 times more popular in the Dominican, you know, like, what did I know? So it really, you know, those memories. So I was 15 and I'm considerably older than that now. (laughs) But those memories to me are so vivid because that really just, I think, opened my world in a way that, you know, it has never shrunk or reverted back to its former self. Yeah, that that kind of set you on your path. I think it did. 
being a travel maven. I love the way you write about the fact that breakfast came from chickens that were in the yard. Yeah. They, they had the eggs. And for you, that was just astonishing. And picking mangoes from the tree in the backyard it was my first mango. And, oh. <laughs> yeah. and they haven't tasted as good ever since. <laughs> hmm. So for those who are reading the book, and once again, it's called Why We Travel, A Hundred Reasons to See the World, what do you hope your readers will take away from all of these wonderful stories and these beautiful photos? And uh, you have some of the most marvelous quotations that, that just, you know, I think even if you're not traveling, there there's one from Balanchine, uh, the famous choreographer. I'm, I'm looking at for it right now where obviously he was yelling at his dancers. He was, <laughs> he was saying something like, uh, what are you waiting for? What are you saving for? Now is all there is, is what he said to his dancers. And wow, if there ever was a life lesson, there it is. And I really very much, as I had touched upon before, I did want these to be life lessons because not everyone can travel as much as they like or travel at all. And yeah. you know, the idea of virtual or armchair travel is very real and the importance and the the reward, you know, the satisfaction of armchair travel is not to be discounted because oftentimes we simply can't. You know, we're coming from this period of a pandemic when we yeah. understood that in the you know first dimension. And, you know, mobility, age, circumstances, life, stuff happens. We can't, some of us, travel ever. So I wanted this to be, you know, the quintessential armchair tool. But I also wanted people to take these life lessons and, and, and you know, apply them to everyday life. Um, and together with the Balanchine quote, which I so loved, there's a kind of companion quote that I uh, is one of the final quotes in the book. So I'm kind of winding down and closing out the book that's by Leonard Cohen, who I so love. Oh, yeah. And he said, the years are flying past and we all waste so much time wondering if we dare to do this or dare to do that. But the thing is to leap, to try to take a chance. So um, whether, you know, it's about inviting your family back over for Thanksgiving after you've had a few riffs or hmm. just, you know, reassessing life because postpone no pleasure. Time is precious. We've all just been Netflixing in our sweats for far too long. <laughs> so yeah. if it's travel or whatever it is that you love to do, um, Warren Buffett just um, was interviewed by one of the, I think, Inc. or Fortune magazine. And they said that he, you know, condenses everything in life to four words. And they make you read like a 20 page article before getting to his final four words. Yeah. And it, he simply said, do what you love. So huh. in our case, it's travel and a couple million other things. But in our case, it's travel. And for, you know, whatever it is that, you know, sparks your joy. I think that this book that was written during pandemic, when I had that moment to kind of step back and reflect, I think hopefully everybody has come through with a conviction to live life more meaningfully and to yeah. do everything that has been on a side burner for way too long. Or just to think and, you know, to, to be to do that deeper dive. What is it about life that you so love and are you doing it as much as you should? And if mm. not, why? Because often we can and we just have pages and pages and lists of reasons that we choose not to or think we can't. 
Yeah. Well, on that note, I'm going to thank you, oh. Patricia, both both for this wonderful interview and for your your gorgeous book, which which really is a a mood lifter. It's a mood lifter, and it's something that will make people think more deeply about how they're living their lives, very much so. So thank you again. Oh, thank you, Pauline. And to those of you who are listening, thank you. And uh, to those of you who are traveling, I'm jealous. I wish I was on the road right now, especially after reading Patricia's book. But may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week.